When you are very young, when you're in your early 20s, uh, life is endless and something is going to happen, you know, even, even five years down the road feels like a tremendously long time, let alone 10 or whatever. Welcome to How I Wrote This, a show about writers, their books, and the story behind their stories. I'm Pamela Hensley, and on the show today, the writer Mikhail Yasol talks about his years as a young Soviet refusenik, how the Russian language lends itself to 2,000-word sentences, and the idiocy and lasting damage of the Trump presidency on democracy and the reputation of America. Mikhail was born and raised in the city of Leningrad, originally and again after 1991, known as St. Petersburg, Russia. Though he had a relatively happy childhood, a son of Soviet intelligentsia, he woke up in his teens to the fact that the Soviet Union was not the utopia he'd been led to believe. He applied for an exit visa, was denied, quit his job, and became a security guard at an amusement park, and around the same time joined a KGB-monitored underground writing group called Club 81. At the age of 30, Mikhail finally made it to the West. Despite his rudimentary English, he was accepted to study creative writing at the University of New Hampshire. Today, he's a professor at Concordia University, author of two collections of short stories, a frequent contributor of essays to magazines such as The New Yorker, and creative director of the international program of summer literary seminars where friends George Saunders and Francine Prose have both acted as faculty. He joins me in the studio today. Mikhail Yasel, what was the promise of the Soviet Union that you were sold when you were a young boy? When I was a young boy, I was not thinking necessarily in those terms. Um, I just had a normal, ordinary, reasonably happy Soviet childhood. And that was the only world that I knew. And, uh, and we were told from very early age that we were lucky to have been born in the Soviet Union and that luckier than any other children in the world. And we kind of believed it, but we didn't think too much about it. It just was the reality of our childhood, the reality of our lives. If something is the only world that you know, you'll accept it. Right. Even if you, I mean, uh, unhappiness starts with comparison. Well, at what age did you begin to realize there was another place to compare it to? Probably around 16, 15, 16, maybe. I didn't quite, didn't quite make a mental note of the moment when suddenly, not just me, but friends of mine started being ironic and cynical towards the reality that surrounded us. It probably had something to do with, uh, with the adults that uh, in our lives, which is to say our parents and their circle of friends. They were the Soviet intelligentsia and they tended to be ironic about that. At some point we registered in our minds that to be cynical and ironic about the life that uh, surrounded us was the right thing to do. And from that moment on, everything started being viewed uh, at that angle somehow that uh, suddenly we noticed the stupidity of uh, the Soviet propaganda and uh, the stupidity of the leaders of the country and the pompousness and, the, uh, and their uncouthness and coarseness and in general how stupid and dumb all of it was. 
But at that point, it was just that. It was not any ideological, you know, uh, opposition necessarily, because in order for that to emerge, you have to have some kind of an alternative in mind. And we didn't have one. When you were younger, your parents were fairly, it was not clear what their views were? They were Soviet intelligentsia that were sort of like formed by the Khrushchevian thaw, which is late 50s, early 60s, when suddenly it was revealed that the preceding generations, like that, those of my grandparents, for instance, um, you know, lived in a fairly horrible, uh, tyrannical dictatorship that killed tens of millions of people for no reason at all. But they didn't know that at the time or, you know, uh, but it still was sort of like Stalinism was viewed as a distortion of the original idea of Leninism, maybe. And uh, and so at that, my parents didn't have, um, they were Soviet people. They didn't have any strong ideological positions except to, to know that everything that surrounded them was a lie, but it was the only world that they knew and that they could exist in, and so they made the most of it. Uh, they didn't think too much about it, and all their friends were like that, with minor adjustment uh, on the fact that they were Jewish, and uh, most of their friends were, or some half of their friends were not Jewish, and that made a difference of some sorts. For instance, my father's colleagues, scientists, maybe less prominent than him, were, for instance, allowed to travel abroad periodically to some socialist country for a science conference, but my father couldn't even begin to be considered for that. So, and also, you know, from fairly early age, maybe in my early teens, I started noticing that they were trying to listen to the so-called enemy voices in Russian in the night, in the quiet of the BBC. bedroom. BBC, The Voice of America, and uh, the German wave, Die Deutsche Welle. Uh, there was also Radio Free Europe or Free or, or Liberty, uh, and, but that was so severely jammed that uh, one couldn't hear anything at all. Whereas with The Voice of America and with the BBC, um, you could hear certain sentences and maybe like organize some kind of a sequence of sentences in your mind through the the howling of the jamming installations. But they listened to that in in secret, not with you. No. At some point, they knew that I knew, and but they knew me well enough at that point that I would not be talking about that at school, for instance. And um, and I suspect that that was the case with the parents of most of my friends anyways. At what point did you start thinking that you might like to leave? Well, um, that was actually uh, something that uh, I remember fairly vividly because... There was a, I was in the tenth grade, and um, for a for a while I had a position, an informal kind of uh, social duty to be a polite informant, which is to say, once a week on Fridays, usually after classes, to deliver the news of the world, the political news, to the rest of the high school students. Um, and so, because you know, I was uh, I, I like to to talk in public. Uh, I had no problems with that, and also I read this uh, weekly journal called Zorubizhon, which is Russian abroad, which is basically a compilation of articles from mainly communist newspapers in the West. But we didn't know that uh, you know some of those newspapers were not really newspapers that anybody. 
actually read. Actually read. And and I remember uh, at some point talking about the explosion in the offices of the impresario called Sol Yurok uh, in New York. He was developing cultural and artistic ties with the Soviet Union and invited Soviet ballet and Moiseev dance ensemble to New York. And sometime during during uh, their presence there, uh, there was an explosion in his office, and his secretary was killed. He himself was wounded. He was in his 80s. The office was destroyed, and that was an attack uh, by the Jewish Defense League. And it was in connection with, uh, uh, you know, the plight of Soviet Jews who were not allowed to leave the country, and that was 1972. And so then, um, after I did that, full information, uh, I went home and I got a call from a girl from uh, my high school class who I knew for a couple of years uh, had a crush on me. <laughs> and when I heard her voice, I expected to, to, to hear something reasonably nice. And she said, uh, that was a nice presentation you did this afternoon. And I, uh, I took it at face value and I said, oh, thank you. But her voice was fairly dripping with sarcasm now, and she said, oh, you're such a good Jew, aren't you? And, uh, um, uh, and I said, what do you mean? I said, well, you're such a wonderful Jew, is all I'm saying. And she hung up. And then uh, several days later, she just disappeared from school. Uh, one week passed, uh, and then another week, and so we started suspecting that she had been expelled from school or that she you know, was seriously ill. And uh, the teachers wouldn't answer questions about her. And I knew that my mother went to college with her father. And so I, my mother said, okay, it's, it's a secret. It's a very serious matter. So you cannot really discuss it with anyone. But uh, she and her family had left for Israel. And that was, um, that was the very, very, very beginning of Jewish... Uh, I mean, it had started in late 60s. But it was usually from the outskirts of the Soviet Empire, like uh, southern republics, like you know, like uh, Tajikistan, uh, Uzbekistan, uh, places like that, or or on the other side of the Soviet spectrum, Lithuania, Latvia, Estonia, Jews from there, usually not from big metropolis, not from Moscow, and yet, and not from definitely not Leningrad, which was the most ideologically hidebound city in the country, and so I was completely stunned by this development. You know, it was the same as uh, my mother had told me that they just decided to relocate to the moon or something like that, you know? Right. It was, uh, you know, the, the the world outside the Soviet Union didn't exist for us. I mean, it, it, we knew that it existed and the life there was starkly different from our life. But uh, that but option never occurred to you? Never, uh, even remotely. And so um, uh, somewhere around that time, late at night, I, maybe that's very night or maybe the following night, I came into my parents' bedroom and they were trying to listen to the enemy voices and uh, the, the shortwave radio propped on my father's uh, stomach rising and falling, rising and falling as he was trying to, to, un- to string together those sentences in this toxic uh, anti-Soviet Russian <laughs> voice. And, uh, uh, you know, the voice that was enunciating too carefully for anyone who actually lived in the Soviet Union. And uh, and I said, well, she is gone, and uh, presumably some other people are living too. Uh, how about us? 
And and they just, my mother just sighed and my father just chuckled ruefully or not ruefully, just ironically maybe and said, well, but you know, right, don't you, that uh, this option will never be available to us. This is because of your father's position? That's because my father was, of course, was developing defenses of Soviet submarines um, uh, electromagnetic fields wise so you know and the, and when you're 16 the word that word never it got stuck in my craw uh, somehow and I just vowed to myself that some point never but I knew that it would be very 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 long time and in the meantime life was happening the ordinary normal life of a very young person with all the interests that I had at that time like excessive playing soccer for instance <laughs> you know this kind of thing Your father was a, an engineer, a fairly prominent one, and you, although you weren't very interested, you also studied engineering and you became an engineer. You graduated, you worked in the field for a few years, uh, but then you quit to become a security guard at an amusement park. Was this part of your plan for getting out? Yes, absolutely. I had applied to emigrate by that point and uh, the, was immediately turned down, obviously, uh, so became like... Refusenik, that was the word. And, uh, was that an actual word? That was an actual word. If you Google it, you'll see that it was, uh, you know, there were demonstrations in New York and Montreal. I, some of my colleagues as teenagers participated in freedom to Soviet refuseniks and so forth. Refusenik. <laughs> it was, uh, we called ourselves that way. And uh, there were tens of thousands, if not more, of refuseniks in the Soviet Union because for, for a variety of reasons. By the time when I had applied, Soviet Union had made Afghanistan. And, uh, and I applied like shortly after that. And uh, after Jimmy Carter boycotted Soviet Olympics and, uh, and it became clear that Soviet Union would never in the foreseeable future attain the most favored trade nations status. But so when that happened, uh, you know, Soviet Union no longer had any incentive to allow the Jews to leave because they were, we were the strategic, you know, uh, you know if they want them, Soviet Jews, uh, than not for nothing. So I'm curious, you, you applied, you were refused, you applied again, you were refused again. No, you automatically renew your application, okay. but you know that they automatically respond. Once you get into the status of a refusenik, it would last indefinitely. If things hadn't gone as they did, what, what difference would this have made to the quality of the rest of your life? When you are very young, when you're in your early 20s, uh, life is endless and something is going to happen, you know, even even five years down the road feels like a tremendously long time, let alone 10 or whatever. Somebody would die, Brezhnev had already died, then they started dying in rapid succession, then right, Andropov, Chernenko. You know, and indeed, eventually Gorbachev came and decided to get rid of the backlog of refuseniks immediately because he needed to improve relations with the West in a hurry. So, uh, so at that point, um, y you didn't have the right not to have a job, not to be gainfully employed. Four months of that, and you would be so-called tuniyadets, which is to say a person who doesn't work for a living. And KGB used that tool. They sometimes would follow a person they didn't like, followed to the human resources that the person had just visited and said, don't hire this guy. But even without that prompt, it would be completely, once you had applied to emigrate, nobody would hire you in, uh, you know, as an engineer or anybody else, unless they're suicidal. They would openly... They would <laughs> because op it was trouble for them. Huge trouble, yeah. obviously. 
and because they were obligated to to have like open trials of those people and so forth. Well, this seems like it would have a, an immense impact on your life. Well, everything it, had an immense impact on my life. <laughs> I guess. <laughs> everything has an impact on our lives because what's the ground base of comparison? You know, it was a, just a very different life. So it wasn't life of an ordinary Canadian or American citizen suddenly subjected to that sort of circumstances. It was life of a Soviet citizen uh, raised in completely different circumstances, subjected to this particular set of circumstances. So you made the decision. It was it was worth it to to try. And it was worth it to try because I wanted a clean break in some ways, and I wanted to start the process, hoping that maybe ten years down the road, or however many years down the road, when again when you're in your early twenties, something is bound to happen down the road. Your parents must have talked to you, tried to talk you out of it, or. Well, yes, my uh, they were horrified, uh, but but because once you. Because simultaneously with that, uh, and leaving my leaving my engineering jobs, uh, I also became member of an underground literary community. It was called Club Eighty One. Like Club Eighty One. Yeah. Was yeah. it a vibrant scene, or what? I mean, what were the people like? Uh, it was uh, people were. It was around one hundred people. The club itself was founded with full awareness and indeed uh, tacit support on the part of the Leningrad KGB. Well, now that is curious because. I can understand it from the KGB's point of view, but as writers, if you knew that the KGB considered you an official, unofficial group, did you not? Were there not splinter groups? Oh, there were many splinter. Okay. <laughs> there were many splinter groups. What united people were was the fact that most of them were actually talented and had no hope of being published in the quote-unquote official Soviet um, uh, journals. But many of them, uh, many of them, wanted to become the official quote-unquote, Soviet writers and members of the Union of Soviet Writers, for which you needed to have a book publication or two in the recognizable official Soviet publisher. So it just meant that those people, for a variety of reasons, uh, you know, didn't write ideologically approved. Some of them were organically weren't capable of writing something ideologically compatible. And some of them... Um, yeah, uh, and some of them deliberately didn't want to, to fit in. Um, some of them were Western-oriented, and eventually the splinter group to which I belonged was the so-called Westerners, and we got our own space. What was the attraction was that they, it was a club. They provided us a space under the auspices of Leningrad Union of Writers, which is another was another branch of the KGB, essentially. Um, but they, they provided this club with a space, which is like 50 meters away from U.S. consulate in Leningrad in the Porsche neighborhood. And sometimes uh, people, you would come out or go in there in that club and just to appreciate, just to look at the U.S. huge U.S. flag there and two huge KGB militianers guarding the and entries and uh, and. Uh, uh, occasionally a U.S. Marine wandering out, and just to appreciate that it's 50 meters, but also... A million impact, miles. million miles away. Yeah, yeah. So as, um, as a member of this club, did you, did you feel rebellious? Did you feel, like, was it anti-Soviet uh, sentiment or just it rebellious was, youth? It was, it was all of it. Uh, first, it was primarily drinking. <laughs> it, it was a drinking club. Okay. Now we're talking. <laughs> yeah, uh, it was a it was a space provided where writers, underground writers, from the standpoint of the KGB, indeed, it was just like 
they were thinking outside the box. And while they were thinking outside the box, the country eventually fell apart. Um, but they, while they were chasing underground writers, but uh, they're primary preoccupation was to prevent, uh, you know, the smuggling of manuscripts into the West and uh, and either through some well-meaning Russian scholar from New York or, you know, or, but, or some low-level consulate employee, you know, just uh, from France, UK, Germany, whatever. And so uh, they just wanted everybody to be in the same space. Does any of your writing from that time still exist? Yeah, it exists in Russian, uh, obviously. And uh, um, yeah, I, I've been meaning for many, 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 many years to to translate it. Or, and, and some people have translated some of my stories written in English, but uh, um, but I've never translated the other way around. No, I didn't. Never. Is it the same style, the same sort of thing that you wrote about? I think so. Uh, in many ways, it is, uh, because style is very much a matter of artistic temperament. Uh, and certain acceleration and certain rhythm and so forth. And so uh, I think that now I've uh, sort of like I reached the point, maybe not just now, but several years ago, where I kind of can afford to write Russian write sentences in English. Okay, we'll go back to that when we talk about process. So you, you eventually were granted your exit visa. You left and you went to America. Were you following a particular dream? And yeah, the, the the dream was, and that was the degree of our naivete, uh, we uh, knew that books were published in Russian in the United States. And we had seen those books, and they were like professionally published books. And so naturally we assumed that if somebody is publishing books, then somebody gets paid for that, and somebody is member of the equivalent of the Union of Soviet Writers in America. And that means that once you're a member of the Union of Soviet Writers, that meant that you didn't have to work. It was like better than any tenure at the university, you know. You just get lots of money and uh, dachas and the country side and, uh, and all kinds of privileges where you can buy like, you know. Uh, you thought this awaited you in America. I thought, uh, <laughs> I thought something equivalent would happen if you start writing in Russian in America and then you just in other words, I thought you can reasonably well support yourself writing in Russian. And that was, I was disabused of that within the first half an hour. Right. <laughs> <laughs> and, what was your first impression of the West? Oh, I, do, I was just so overwhelmed that I, uh, I didn't uh, even uh, register it. Everything just seemed artificial and gray and strange and completely overwhelming. And the very, in very short order, I developed massive depression or anxiety or something like that. And um, and so that was the, my first two years, at least. You, uh, you, you became depressed because, because why? Because, well, because, you know, I didn't know what to do with my life because I kind of, I had promised myself not to be an engineer and I probably couldn't, I, I would have to, to study real hard. I, I, I was going to be a writer, but I couldn't write in English. And, uh, uh, and Because you didn't speak English. Well, I, I, I could read English quite well, and I had translated American poetry and even some short pieces in, into Russian, but I had no practice to speak of in speaking uh, or comprehension because obviously without practice. And I panicked when I first arrived, and I realized that I couldn't understand anything being said to me at this you know normal conversational 
acceleration, you know, and 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 then people start speaking to you like they do to like dogs or like little children, you know, like good dog or like, or like, or this is a fork, okay. And, uh, <laughs> do you have those in the Soviet Union? No. <laughs> Since you were brought up with. I, I guess you would call it very strong anti-American sentiment. Did you, what was the reception of Americans to this new Soviet emigre? Well, by that point, there had already been like hundreds of thousands of Soviet emigres in the United States, for one thing. Secondly, in the Soviet Union, uh, as I was growing up, uh, there was great fascination with America and uh, the West in general. And so the distrust of everything that was printed in in the newspapers was such that everything was read, all pluses or minuses were replaced with pluses and so forth. So we basically thought that America was absolute paradise. And uh, many of us probably knew much more about America than not only than average American about Soviet Union, which is not a difficult thing. <laughs> but 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 uh, but uh, but many Americans, we just knew all the brands of all the you know all the books that were. We were like beset with America, besotted with America, and uh, and the West, uh, and uh, and so of course you there you are, and suddenly it's you know it turns out that it's just a place, and then did you feel welcome? Yeah, I felt reason as a curiosity. Uh, you know, just people were uh, sometimes. Uh, to my great benefit, like when, for instance, when I was accepted into the graduate writing program at the University of New Hampshire without having actually written anything in English, but having sent them a translation of one of my Russian stories by a friend of mine, to, and, but honestly telling them that I had had. But I was trying. I started trying fairly early on, uh, but only at the University of New Hampshire I started starting and finishing real actual stories. And, and is this when you start to feel better about things? About yeah, life? absolutely. Yeah. Okay. Things start taking shape. Well, especially after I uh, graduated from the University of New Hampshire and without having any idea what to do next, but suddenly I was offered a Stegner Fellowship at Stanford. Life, You're good. <laughs> yeah, but life, it just basically, you know, some kind of certainty because... Yes, it's true that on average Americans live better than us, much better. That may well be the case, but Americans don't have any certainty about tomorrow, what tomorrow would bring. Maybe tomorrow they would lose their job and they would just die in the ditch somewhere. We are the Soviet people know that, you know, our, uh, you know. Job so, security well, and healthcare. It was a kindergarten for yeah. grown-ups. Yeah. So um, yeah, and so so you know, the, I was I was fearful of how I would support myself, and then just you know, after Stegner Fellowship, then suddenly I had a book publication, and then I got my first teaching job at the University of Minnesota, and then from then on, I knew that my life would be kind of track. You'd be okay. Yeah. So it was '86 when you emigrated, yeah. correct? Okay. Then you went to school in New Hampshire, and it was. 91, when you first published your stories, right? The, the no, the st- uh, yeah, there was a collection of stories. But I started uh, having stories published when I was still at the University of uh, New Hampshire. My first story was a North American Review. And that was like, I couldn't believe it, obviously. Uh, was that the, bol- I'm going to pronounce it wrong, Boligoy? No, um, no, it was Counterbalance okay. in my first collection. Right. And Boligoy was on Boulevard. And then they went together in the collection every hundred Yeah, 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 yeah. Okay, well, 
Uh, the, the, then there were others in like Three Penny Review. Like the, there was a whole bunch of magazines to the point that when I was at Stanford, an editor from uh, Norton called me up and said, uh, you know, how many stories do you have? I said, I had like seven or eight. She said, well, can you get the top two? I don't remember the number, how many there were and every hunter wants to know. I said, yeah, well, I'll need a couple more months. And so that's how it... And then I told my uh, literary friends there, and they said, that's not how it usually yeah. happens. <laughs> they don't call you. <laughs> and, uh, from major New York publishing house, no. They normally do not. So you're teaching, you're getting published. D- does teaching help you to write, or does it take away from your writing time? D- when, I, when I was accepted at the University of New Hampshire, and uh, um, I had uh, several great professors, but one of them uh, was teaching fiction, three-hour graduate seminar, and um, named Thomas Williams, uh, much underappreciated, very, very fine American writer who liked to be a loner and like rustic New Hampshire type, cabin in, 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 the, in, the, in the mountains, this kind of thing, who was, you know, World War II veteran and uh, went to college on GI Bill and so forth and was... N- Twice New York Pulitzer Prize nominee. I think one time he won Pulitzer Prize, and uh, but he made very little, very little of it. So I remember sitting in his office, very spacious office, both of us smoking away and talking about Stalin, Fidel Castro, you know, this kind of thing. So he left me well alone in his workshop, and I was amazed listening how people could talk about the same story for two hours and how he analyzed the stories and how students responded. And that was a revelation to me. And so uh, I, I credit him with, and my first book is dedicated to him, I credited him with me, with mine, uh, and then eventually developed that I just love discovering um, the, the story's potential. And because also because I read and still do English much slower than in Russian, I kind of notice things that if I were reading this in Russian, even by reading this in my native language, if English were my native language, then I would zoom by that. Uh, but skip here, over the detail. I skip over the detail, and, uh, but here I notice certain little kernels, and from that kernel, from that seed, a story could grow in a different direction. And I notice those things, and I love those moments, telling people the potential for their own stories and where the story could be adjusted, or maybe it needs to be left alone, or maybe it needs to be shorter. Very often it needs to be shorter. But uh, um, So that's where I started appreciating that, and Tom Williams says... Uh, workshop. In terms of writing, like you said, English is not your first language. But what's different about actually putting pen to paper and writing a story that's not in a language you learned as a child? Um, Especially since your memories might be of that time. Well, yeah. um, You know, the window of becoming a native speaker of English closes about 17, 18, 19, maybe, judging by a large number of, of Soviet immigrants whom I know. And uh, um, their children, of course, are Americans, people who come to America at seven or Canada or whenever, uh, or, or wherever they come, they become native speakers. And it, if only parents speak English, uh, Russian at home, the child would retain Russian, but it would not be the same quality as their English because America is stronger than the household, generally. There is a great book about that uh, called, by Joseph Roth called um, 
call it sleep, uh, about Eastern European immigrants in Lower East Side. They get stuck, left uh, behind with their Yiddish and Polish and Russian, hundreds of thousands, million of them in Lower East Side, immigrating from, from the Pale in, in, in Russia. And their children playing stickball and baseball in the streets and uh, and, uh, hang, and 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 they just drifting away into a different language into America. America takes them away linguistically. So um, uh, and that's the story of every immigration. Uh, so um, with with me it was uh, I, I started writing writing very very simple sentences. And I started writing in English, trying to write in English, because Russian was aiding and abetting me with my depression and anxiety, because Russian offered zero resistance. And actually, Russian is a kind of language that if you want to wallow in misery and, and, and the depression, it'll help you. It's, it's, it's just that kind of language. It's that kind of language. <laughs> it'll help you greatly and very happily, like, like a dog, you know, just like, let's do it. And, uh, and um, yeah. Uh, and it's it, it's it's kind of language much looser structure than English, and it's easier in uh, to overwrite in Russian, for instance, and uh, to to become too verbose. And uh, it's like you can become like a, like a John Ashbery poem. You just start somewhere, and then five pages later, you take off in a whirlwind of dust. And like, how how did I get here? Well, you got here, and so. Um, uh, Is this hence the two thousand word sentence? Yeah, <laughs> or five thousand words. I have stories in five thousand word sentences in a single sentence. In a single oh, sentence yeah. <laughs> so you know, uh, at first it was just uh, just being adequate to every very simple sentence. You know, be adequate to the sentence, and sentences are short and simple. Sentence, 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 sentence. It's like walking through treacherous terrain by a narrow path through a swamp or something like that. Step to the left. Step to the right. Eventually, you get there. Uh, well, st- but if you but if you start getting off on tangents, you'll you'll be lost immediately, and then several sentences, and you have a paragraph, and that's how the wall is, and then another paragraph, and that's how the wall is built. That's how a story is built, and so uh, I had to have a clear sense of where I'm going at any point, and it's generally very helpful, even when one writes very long sentences. You need to know where you're going all the time, from one point of hot point in your mind to the next one, from one point of excitement to the next one, just constantly looking forward in point A to getting to point B and from point B to point C and so forth. So I got it from there. From That was the beginning of the process of writing uh, in English. I, f- I found it interesting in many of your stories, you use certain words, like you use organ for KGB operative, I guess, mm-hmm. and uh, words like disappeared and unmasked. Are those words that you translate literally from how they would say it in Russian, or, or is it just American vernacular? Well, the KGB called themselves organi, the organs, the organs of internal security. Mm-hmm. Um, well, that where, where where that comes from, that that from that long story, uh, love like water, love like fire. But that's completely that's that's the atmosphere from which Orwell took material for 1984. So I was mindful of the fact that, you know, of disappeared, you know, of mind control that she should not be thinking certain things because somebody would know that what she's thinking and so forth. I would say it's, it's, it's Orwellian, except it happened before Orwell wrote 1984. Hmm. I loved uh, your story, Moscow Windows. I, I just thought there was such a warmth to it and you could feel this affection 
Uh, in it, two boys are talking about a man who returned from the Soviet Union after living in England for many years and was immediately arrested and sent to a gulag. And one of the boys says, but why did he do it? He knew he'd be arrested. And the other replies that you cannot not do it. Once born in the Soviet Union, you belong to the Soviet Union. Did you believe that? At well, the, the, uh, that conversation was with my late uh, cousin. We had many conversations similar to that. Unfortunately, he died last year, but uh, he was my favorite person when I was growing up. But we diverged precisely at that point when I started thinking about leaving the Soviet Union, and he very often citing the fact that uh, he lived in Moscow, I lived in Leningrad, and uh, we would uh, spend summers together and, and visit each other often. We started diverging around that point where I started thinking about leaving the Soviet Union. He couldn't conceive of it, and he was very patriotic in many ways and uh, loved Russia, you know, um, and traveled a lot and photographed Far East and so forth. We speculated that because he was... His mother was my mother's uh, cousin, but his father was Russian, so he was half Jewish. Maybe that had something to do with that. And so, therefore, he, in his passport, he was uh, entered as Russian. Um, that made a difference. He would be able, for instance, being in my place, to enter the university philology department, but I couldn't. Something like that. Uh, things of it it uh, it changed the color of the world. There were more opportunities for him. More opportunities, yeah. Uh, but you know, uh, did he ever? He was there. Uh, he never left. He never left, but he visited, and then he would say that he was wrong. Of course, uh, yeah. Um, that's that's what many people do believe, uh, did believe, I would imagine. Uh, I I thought in. Love Like Water, Love Like Fire, that you captured the fear of living under Stalin exceptionally well. Um, the wife of a party official waits, petrified, as officers climb the stairs of their apartment building, and she's certain they're coming for her husband. I, it reminded me of Julian Barnes's novel about Shostakovich, and Shostakovich is waiting by the elevators for the power to come. When you've achieved that effect, and you read it back, and you you see it's there, is that is that about the craft of writing, or is that experience, or is that imagination, or a combination? I found a photograph among my mother's uh, belongings, uh, an old photograph of her as a little girl, nine-year-old, and her cousin from Moscow, uh, who is a year older, and uh, another cousin from Moscow, sister of the other cousin, who is a little girl. And my grandmother and my grandmother's uh, sister and uh, my grandfather and my grandmother's mother in uh, Belarus, which is where they're from. They were from the shtetl. And I knew that my grandfather was sort of like an up-and-coming Komsomol Young Communist League leader in Leningrad. And it's 1939. On 1938 photograph, and I'm wondering what are they doing in Belarus? Uh, even though that's her homeland, but he wouldn't be spending vacations there. And I just speculate what would be happening. And then I just realized that, at least in my imagination, that she dragged him out of Leningrad because all of his friends, party nomenclatura, nomenclature, friends uh, were being uh, arrested and executed. 
And so she dragged him out kicking and screaming probably because that was the front where he had to be. Uh, but nonetheless, she, she took him to Belarus where he was a nobody. Well, he was a, he was a big person in Leningrad, but in Belarus they had their own nomenclature and their own you know, acceleration of arrests and the schedule of executions. He was not on that schedule. So I, then I, once I had that thought, I just uh, thought, well, imagine how it would happen one night in 1939. All of that, I knew all the realities of that from books, from, other, from older people, from everywhere. Everybody knows in the Soviet Union who had read Gulag, for instance, or One Day in the Life of Denisovich and countless other books and so on. And so I knew all that. And then also I brought into that everything that I could around that, uh, like, for instance, how uh, apparently when she was five years old and her sister was three years old, how along with hundreds of thousands of other Russian Jews from uh, from the Pale, which is the Pale of Settlement from Belarus, they had sold everything out and bought tickets to come to New York, but they were late to the whatever, to the long and arduous road to Odessa and to that steamer, Gloria. And I remember, yeah, thinking when I was a teenager and heard that apocryphal story, which, uh, you know, thinking, oh, man. You know, <laughs> would I have got, saved you a lot of trouble. It would have saved me lots of trouble. I would have been an American teenager then. I was like 13 or 14. I would be wearing jeans and, and chewing gum and all of that. And I would be speaking English instead of Russian. That would be <laughs> wonderful. But then, of course, you know, wait a minute. She was five grandfather's family was not leaving or wasn't, you know, so she would probably meet somebody else. And somebody else would have been born and so forth. And so the whole history, somebody else, in other words, I wouldn't exist. Somebody else would exist in my stead. Um, so it's good she missed the steamer. <laughs> except somebody else already in America would be thinking that story was about him or her. In 2009, you wrote the foreword to a collection of short stories called Raskazi, uh -huh. uh, and you speak of the new Russian realism. Can you talk a bit about that? It's kind of difficult to talk about that now because everything has changed. Mm -hmm. And everything has changed, uh, of course, most dramatically after February 24, 2022. But it had been changing and moving in that direction for years now. So the atmosphere of expectation and atmosphere of uh, promise, literary promise, somehow... I can't imagine Russian writers in Russia writing now, but there was still hope that that might have been reversible, could have been reversed. So are we going to have to wait for the next generation of Russian writers? Yeah, yeah. I think so. Or, or writers uh, in exile. Uh, I guess we're getting a little bit political here, but in... Um, no, that's fine. Yeah, in, in your notes from Cyberground... Trumpland in my old Soviet feeling. Your collection of posts is diary entries. You don't mince words talking about Trump, using terms like boundless sleaze, extreme mm -hmm. moronic ignorance, and two-bit dictator-loving criminal authoritarian <laughs> grifter. So tell us how you really feel about the, <laughs> the former well, US Well, bear president. in mind that this was I was just peacefully <laughs> writing my own posts on Facebook, venting and letting out steam when suddenly editor calls and says, can we publish this as a book? I said, I have no problem with that. I don't have to do anything. You just take those posts and you publish them. There are some other posts there. There is a 
there are a couple pieces that were in the New Yorker about Aretha Franklin, for instance, and so forth. But uh, but mainly, yeah, it was about Trump because uh, you know I wanted to let out steam. I felt very strongly uh, about about uh, him, and uh, um, and so yeah, I didn't mince words on Facebook. At the start of it, in October 2016, you, you actually sound kind of hopeful. You say that um, it's a tragedy, but, but we'll get through it. You know, America will be all right in the end. And I'm wondering, looking back now, do you think there has been long-term damage? That Yeah, absolutely, yeah. There has been long-term damage. Yeah, well, I actually remember that night when he was, I was watching uh, on, uh, on my laptop the elections and how suddenly fully I, I had a bottle of wine I was expecting fully you know to celebrate Hillary Clinton's victory and then suddenly it turned suddenly something started going wrong Florida and suddenly two hours later it's just the unthinkable is taking place so I took my dog and went out for a walk and uh, lived in, uh, uh, near Concordia and walking around there and uh, People sitting in bars and restaurants on Sherbrooke, and uh, you know, just completely unaware, like uh, just <laughs> that something really momentously Major. horrible yeah. is is happening, but not in it's Montreal. It's not like a football game, but right? not no, in no, downtown Montreal. No, not at all. <laughs> and so, um, yeah, and so I remember the. Uh, uh, walking with the dog, the dog is also completely unaware, but 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 sensing that I'm in a gloomy kind of mood, you know. Well, yes, there was this hopefulness that you know that American system is stronger than any one individual. In the end, it turned out to be true, but with great great damage, mainly you know just. Uh, also, United States reputation as as a democracy has been stained forever by Trump. It will never be uh, perceived. You know, the people would rightfully point and say, "Who are you to, to tell us?" Yeah, a lot of people believe that the system's completely broken now, and that unchecked capitalism has become a disaster. And I wondered, do you think there was ever a chance for something in between the the communism or or socialism and and the capitalism we have now? Well, communism is one of those, you know, periodic table elements that only exist on paper. But their, you know, their half-life is like one millionth of a second. They just cannot exist in... <laughs> in Human in nature a, gets in, in the way, right? <laughs> yeah. Well, that was Marx's, Marx's greatest uh, sort of like posit, that humans are like pawns on chessboard. And the, they, they all perform functions in accordance to their position in the world, but that's not the case. People constantly act counterintuitively against their own interests and so forth. Marx didn't provide for that. But, yeah, the system that exists in Scandinavia is fine, uh, obviously. The thing is that there is no real alternative to capitalism, just just a more humane capitalism, like in Sweden or in Finland. Or Do you in, see that ever coming to America or Canada? Canada is much closer to that, much, much, much closer to that than uh, than the United States. The United States probably not because it's uh, just it's a different idea. It's a huge space. It's fifty different states. It uh, it's uh, there are many many Americas in America. We live in a 
difficult time when uh, you know Trumpism had uh, its uh, reasons and uh, you know was prepared by the, the tens of millions of uh, people lost their jobs due to globalization and economic displacement and they lost self-respect and also along comes somebody this is how fascism always started on the on the on the back of uh, economic hardship somebody comes along who is a talented demagogue and uh, And he tells people, like, you know, you used to be ashamed of uh, saying certain things about some other people in your narrow circle only you could. Now there is no shame, I'll take my shame upon you and so forth. So he liberated people of uh, legitimized racism, for instance. He just, uh, he, um, you know, uh, legitimized shamelessness. And and that, that bind between him and his uh, core electorate is unbreakable because he liberated them from the need to be ashamed of themselves at any point, and also that nothing is their fault, it's the fault of other people. All the misfortunes of their lives that they are not necessarily very educated or very talented or very bright, so forth, it's not your fault, that your their station in life is not due to your shortcomings maybe, or because life is unfair. Life is unfair because all those other people, you know, those liberals in the East Coast, on the West Coast, all those other people who don't look like you, don't think like you, don't love like you, uh, the, all those other people who think they actually own America as well, whereas you know that you are the real, or by birthright, you are the real owner and master of America. And so that's why Trump right now is running like uh, under this, this flag of, uh, you know, of avenging them, you know, just mm-hmm. meeting out retribution, retribution, yeah. retribution against everyone who are communists, globalists, immigrants, black people, Jewish people, Muslim people, Mexicans, everyone, everyone, everyone. Well, um, the book that you wrote, uh, well, the collection of, of your post notes from Cyberground, they show that you're obviously very active on social media. And uh, coming from a society where people were watched and privacy was, was scarce, I'm a bit surprised you're, you're not, you don't mind that form of surveillance. No, because I'm not afraid that uh, I'll be thrown in jail. Or, or, or beaten up. During my years in the Samizdat and underground, um, you had to work hard to get actually jailed. But if you displeased them, they would let you know. And they would let you know by having you beat up in front of your house, like very professionally, but you would be hurting like for for days because they were professionals. And, and that, that was unpleasant. It happened several times. So every this time you different. get the message, this is slightly different. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> this is different. Okay. <laughs> this is, no, but 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 in a way, yeah, I like to think about it like uh, my of this trajectory as from some of that to some of that uh, from underground to cyber ground. So it's it's more or less it's a form of uh, some of that which is self-publishing. Underground literature was very much about self-publishing. We published our underground literary journals, and then other people distributed them and retyped them and, and, and distributed them and so forth. Yeah, so if I post something on Facebook, uh, it's not quite publishing. But sometimes I would get more views than if I published it in, let's say, in, in a literary journal here in Canada or in, like, say, Massachusetts Review or something like that. It's immediate, 
and immediately I know the reaction, and I know that if it works for other people or it doesn't work for other people, I wouldn't necessarily post like conventional uh, stories of 5,000 words, but if it's a one sentence, 5,000 words, I will public, I will po post it. Or if it's a shorter story, I will post that. it. Oh, they've all been <laughs> uh, posted on Facebook. Well, I saw there was a New Yorker article from around this time called Life Under Alternative Facts, uh -huh. and you, you linked to it. You said in the 70s and 80s in the Soviet Union that everyone knew that everything said on TV and on the radio was, was a lie, blatant lie. And you say no one was duped. And so I'm wondering how much... Do Russian citizens know today about what's happening in Ukraine? Oh, that's different. Um, Soviet Union was imposed upon people, ideology that was imposed on people, and there was an ideology. But uh, under Putin, uh, after the 90s, Putin was elected voluntarily, and majority of people supported him and still continue to support him. So I think the brainwashing that people subject themselves to voluntarily is much stronger than imposed from above. And I think that now people actually, many of them, well, despite the state's efforts to, you know, to cut off not all of internet, but Facebook and uh, and Twitter. Russians have uh, means of accessing all the information that's available to any one of us. Prefer not to, probably because what are they going to do with it? If you are young or if you are sort of like have the means or have the opportunity or even like can conceive of it, you leave the country. Even though it's where do you go now? Uh, you go to the place only where they do not require a visa, which is to say Georgia, Kazakhstan, Armenia, Turkey. That's about it. And then after that, after you've established some kind of identity there, you can go to Germany if you have, and so. Uh, but most countries in the West do not accept Russians uh, who want to leave the country. And so what are you going to do? There is probably 20, 30 percent of people who are dead set against this war. And then there, is the, there, there are people, 20 or 30 percent, who actively support it because they support everything that, uh, you know, as, as in the United States, also whatever, you know, Bush wants to go to war with Iraq, 20, 30% would support that wholeheartedly. They will always be uniting against the flag. And then there is the large majority of people whose idea of it is just leave me alone. I don't want to think about it. I don't want to know anything about it. What am I supposed to do with it? Because they feel helpless. Absolutely. Um, back in June, uh, Francine Prose, whom I think is an acquaintance She's a friend, of yours, yeah, yeah. Okay. she wrote in The Guardian about the pulling of the new novel by Elizabeth Gilbert, the author mm -hmm. of Eat, Pray, Love, because it was getting negative reviews for being set in Russia. What, what are your thoughts on that? Well, she wasn't getting negative reviews. She got a letter of protest by a group of Ukrainian citizens who have not read the novel. Nobody had read the novel. Simply protesting the fact that it was set in Russia in, what, 15th century? She has the right to pull her novel, but uh, uh, this is a dangerous, slippery path. And I think, I mean, I understand how Ukrainian people can hate everything Russian now. They, they are fully uh, in their right, obviously. But that doesn't mean that every writer has to just start, uh, you know, vetting their manuscripts for everything Russia-related. My sense is that uh, it's a very, very dangerous, slippery slope, and that uh, 
putting pressure on the writer and telling them what to write and what not to write is undemocratic. Does it lead to self-censorship, I suppose? Self-censorship, yeah. But self-censorship is a good thing in certain ways because it's at the heart of a writer's craft, basically. You know, uh, when, uh, when we were writing in our underground literary magazines, we knew that uh, everything that gets put in there uh, gets read by a censor, one of the censors at the KGB headquarters in, in Leningrad. And, uh, you know, on the one hand, it was kind of flattering that somebody is reading you, but uh, <laughs> which is more than can be said for lots of writers. <laughs> but but uh, uh, on the other hand, it was, uh, you knew that he was reading your um, text with an eye towards getting you in trouble. So certain things, overtly, let's say, political or something, that you would not put in there because you know, that would raise his ire and lead to trouble for you. But uh, then you would try to to say it in a circuitous kind of, in a very oblique and interesting kind of lengthy way. And then you knew that he would think, oh, you think you're so so smart, right? You think you're so much more sophisticated than me, right? That I wouldn't see what you're trying to do here. I don't recognize allegory yeah, or something. Yeah, well, you, you would think that, yeah. And so, so you would think twice about doing that also. And that would be a useful literary um, exercise, as a matter of fact. Self-censorship is at the heart of writing. But, but uh, Elizabeth Gilbert's self-censorship, it's, it's her decision. But I don't think that's uh, in any way democratic. And I don't think that, that's, you know, that somebody protested against your book without having read it, just on the subject. Mm. No. A last question for you then, Michal. Uh, so we were talking about Francine Prose. George Saunders is someone else that uh, mm-hmm. that you know, and uh, he excels also at writing short stories. But then, then after many years, he wrote Lincoln in the Bardo. So mm-hmm. are we gonna are we gonna see a novel from you one day? Oh, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> George George, Son- George, Son- <laughs> George Saunders wrote uh, that novel, uh, as he said, in order to prove to himself that he can write a novel. Right. Um, but it did quite well. Yeah, but uh, I feel that uh, most of the stories that I write, and then and now and now in the process of, they're all kind of linked some ways, in some ways, and they all have a common denominator. Um, and I would maybe like to write stories uh, that are basically uh, uh, sort of like underwritten by a sense of humor, as in George Saunders's case, but otherwise have little in common between themselves. But in my case, I can't. The gravity of Russia is very strong. Thank you, Mikhail, for Thank your you time. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. That was Mikhail Yasel. Find Love Like Water, Love Like Fire at Distill Booksellers in Montreal and other fine bookstores everywhere. I hope you enjoyed the show. Thanks so much for listening. Please make sure to follow us on your podcast app and to sign up for our newsletter on the website howiwrotethisthepodcast.com. Next week, I'll be talking to the Giller Award-winning novelist, Sean Michaels.